Man, okay, I think we'll get started. Um, lovely conversation. Um, if you do have a suggestion for where I should move, please feel free to let me know. But in the meantime, we're chatting about uh, process or technology changes. Don't forget about the external workforce. I'm gonna hand this over to Erica and Wendy, um, but feel free to drop in any question at any time. You can see down there at the bottom, there's a Q&A. Um, so simply uh, drop in a question and we'll be sure to answer it. Excellent. And with that, hand it over to Erica. Beautiful. Just to introduce myself. Hi, everybody. Erica Novak, Head of Client Services here at Upmost. Uh, been a CW practitioner for the last 15 years, uh, creating and evolving CW programs at companies like eBay and LinkedIn, and also doing a stint at Brightful Strategies. But contingent workforce is crazily my, my love, my life, my bread, my butter, something that I, I enjoy thoroughly talking to people here. And so we're excited to have Wendy join us. Uh, Wendy, love to give you uh, have you give us a quick introduction. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, so, for those that uh, haven't heard me speak before, or I've maybe only slightly networked with, uh, I, I manage the uh, external workforce program at Thomson Reuters. Uh, I've been with TR about four years now, um, and, but have had same as you had my hand in the uh, recruitment and ex and contingent labor uh, field for about sixteen years now. Uh, you're one of us. I love that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm grandfathered in. I'm adopted. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that your background, you know, HR and procurement, right? A lot of yeah. people will either be in one or the other and having a mix of both, again, having that blend of skill set and perspective, I think adds such a, a neat dynamic in how you think through, through things and making sure when you're talking about process change or technology processes, mm -hmm. you're actually able to think of it from the other side. Right, so it doesn't just have this one lane of let's make sure HR processes are changing. It's ah, have we brought in our procurement brethren? How does this actually work with IT? And so one of the conversations we want to talk about today is really about making sure that your non-employees or contingent workers are included in that thought and that process when you are making changes and updates for them. And so Wendy, a lot of what we talk about here today is about is about advocacy and influence. Being a CBO program owner, making sure that you are including yourself or being invited to the different conversations that folks are having about changes, policies, philosophies, systems. We'd love to hear a little bit about what your experience has been uh, using your voice. And let's start, let's start specifically around with COVID recovery discussions. And how do you feel the CW program and yourself have been included in those? And how do you play a part? Absolutely. Uh, so with the COVID uh, conversation, I think with many of us program managers, we've been pulled into um, you know, your HR division, uh, your business leaders really, you know, have, have a lot of have a lot of opinion and say of what to do to protect your workers, your employees and what to do uh, to deal with return to work uh, out of COVID. Uh, but then with contractors, so that's that's what they come to us for. They, they come to the program to say, how do we take our program that we've created around employees and where do we adapt it reasonably? to the contract, the external workforce. Um, and for me, I, I was really blessed to have um, my program uh, teams, uh, HR and legal bring me in right from the get-go uh, when we started talking about uh, communication of COVID and working from home, uh, closing down facilities and determining essential versus non-essential workers. Um, so, you know, we, we made sure to, um, you know, when, when a communication was was presented from either the CEO or the head of HR to the business of what is happening to the facility. 
um, whether, you know, definitely contractors that are sitting on the facility, but contractors that are connected to the facility need to know that information too. Um, and in most cases, when we communicate to contractors, what we typically do when it's a process change or something going on, we communicate to the supplier who then communicates to the contractor. But in that situation, that was that COVID situation was one where, you know, we went to our suppliers and said, we'd rather communicate directly, but, you know, separately for the contractors, but directly from the external program, are you okay with that? And they were absolutely on board. So, you know, when our CEO and our, our HR provided communication about sites closing down and sites going to remote working and changing the process for remote onboarding, we then took that message and under, under the header, the communications header of external workforce, communicated that just, you know, directly to our uh, contract colleagues that have uh, an, an at Thompson Reuters email address. Uh, and then also communicate directly to the suppliers of what's going on. So they know, and, and for me, that, that communication, the couple things that we would add to that communication that's different than the employee piece, because on the employee side, you're communicating, you know, contact us if you have questions about leave and vacation and benefits and, and, and healthcare, but clearly the contractors aren't going to contact us. So, it, you know, we had to draft message around for questions about sick leave and benefits and vacation time, please contact your employer and then make sure that we communicate to that employer too to say, hey, we're giving this message out. Be prepared to answer questions as, as your employees come to you. No, that's fantastic. And I think that's something a lot of CW program owners struggle with, right? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I talk to my former peers and colleagues, there's kind of two camps, right? One is something I think that you fall in. One is the you know, you've established yourself cross-functionally where they actually invite you in. They say, ah, I want to make sure I'm including a non-employee perspective. Let's bring in Wendy, the CW champion. And then there's others who sometimes feel like they're forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're either they're pushing or they don't know who to, who to ask or how to include themselves or they don't have the right influence, right? And so they're actually trying to arm someone to give someone else some information. So tell me, in the conversations that you're having, what are some of the things that are really important that the CW program owner is bringing to these conversations? So you mentioned a couple about communication and including the suppliers. Do you have a couple of examples possibly around COVID where it was important for you to call out, these processes work for employees, but you may need to alter them for the non-employees? Yeah, so in regards to COVID, uh, the process is so, you know, what, what happened here at TR was that, you know, our HR presented to me the plan and I had to play a bit of a devil's advocate and ask questions about to make sure that we understood who was going to be responsible for something, who was going to pay for something. So when they said when individuals start returning to the office, uh, everyone will be required to wear a uh, mask. And so for contractors, does that, what does that mean? Are are we the company providing masks for the contractors? Are we asking them to bring their own masks? Or are we asking suppliers to pay for masks? So that was the first question and it became a, that's a good point, we should double check. And we, we did confirm that we were going to supply masks for our facilities and it will be anyone in the facility regardless of whether they're employee or contract. Um, and then the question became around um, temperature checks, temperature checks, contact tracing. Um, if the temperature goes, you know, if, if you're checking temperatures of employees and they, and they spike a temperature, 
you know, we most likely are provide, you know, well, obviously we provide the HR support, but we most likely provide the benefits too, so we can have, have those conversations. But if we're checking, checking temperature of contractors and they spike a temperature, we need to, we need to, what's the protocol of notifying their employer uh, to, to help understand whether they need to quarantine for a short period of time, maybe provide a doctor's note to, in order to come back into the facility. Um, and then uh, the uniqueness is, is uh, the positions uh, in the gig economy where we deal with freelancers that there isn't an employer. Um, how do we make sure that we work with those? And, and it's really you know, a combination of a, yeah, a little bit of our HR, but really relying on the individual themselves as well, because they are technically their own employer in their own company. Yeah, no, and I like when we, when we were chatting before, you had had a, a good example of, all right, if you're checking the temperature and something goes red, who's seeing that, right? right. There, there's also the idea of HIPAA and authorization, right? The idea of, you notice the person in front of you turns red. How do you react to them, right? How does yeah. that feel when someone reacts? To that? Like, where do you go? How do you make sure this conversation is 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 um, confidential, right? And it doesn't feel because at the end of the day, you want them to come back to TR and feel like I was taken care of, I was thought of, I want to come back. Versus, I don't want to go back and work there because of how I was how I was treated. And there are slightly differences between the employee, and you're exactly right. A contractor who maybe comes through a staffing firm who kind of plays a role base, but has a team, right? And a freelancer who is their own person, maybe it's smaller, smaller team, less of um, multiple channels right now. And then you have kind of the outsourced workers who are generally a larger team, but like they're very different on how you communicate and what the process could be. I think one of the things when you and I were chatting, what was really important was having that 360 perspective of how you're designing things is incredibly important. And so through relationships, right? So some of the examples you're giving are from security, right? Are from facilities, are from HR, different folks own different processes, right? And so I'd love to hear um, an example of what you think about decision-making, right? So depending on what the process is, you're being brought in to give your, to give your recommendation and your advice Who's responsible for making the decisions once everyone's input has been heard about what we could do for the processes? Who owns them and how do you play a role? And, you know, so, you know, going outside of COVID, just talking about your, te your technology processes, process changes within the company. Um, I, I know, and that's, you know, when I remember you and I originally talking, I, I kind of mentioned to you, you know, like, here are the issues I'm dealing with is that, you know, in my company, and it's not just my company, I've experienced it before, where they create this great process of how we're going to roll out new computers and this great process of how we're going to shift to Office 365 email accounts. And they've, they've designed everything for the employee experience and completely forgotten about the contractor experience and we still need them to have access. And, and I think unfortunately many HR, not HR, sorry, many IT teams think that Workday and your VMS run the same and they are not the same tool. They do not have the same integrations. They do not function. They function similar, but not the same. Um, and so that's where um, I, you know, I think, I think as a program owner, you have to do two things. If you're not part of that conversation today within your organization, you gotta figure out how to be part of it. You gotta figure out how to get in there. Um, and I will tell you, so when I first joined TR, 
we were not a good part of the conversation with with HR when I, I, I don't entirely know what was going on there, but but our teams did not speak very well and they did not include us in a lot. I have spent the past several years building that rapport and relationship, getting to know my HR partners and leaders, getting to talk to them about contract labor and approaching it in a way of how can I help you? What I'm here for you. I can help you if you need something about converting a contractor. I can help you if you want to know about how we bring on temporary staff versus full-time staff and, and just being available and helpful and then built that trust to where now they're pulling me in to those conversations to say, Hey, we need to think about this process. Um, one of the one of the things that sticks out in my mind is uh, when we went to uh, remote onboarding. So remote onboarding, you're you're onboarding uh, and provisioning equipment and shipping it. And for that process for employees, it's rather straightforward because we know their address. We know they need a laptop and we know they need an email address. Every employee needs a laptop and an email address, but every contractor does not need a laptop and email address in order to do the work for us. Some need email and no laptop. Some simply need a badge because they're at the facility. Some need no, don't need email, but need a contractor ID to get into certain systems. And so they had this one process and brought to me and I said, we've actually got to create three. We take your one process and say, when a contractor needs all the same things an employee needs, we use that. But when they need a network, but no computer, this process. When they need neither, this process. Um, and so having to kind of remind them of those things. And when we change, uh, when we change technology systems, um, we, we've worked to increase our internet security or, or online security. Uh, by creating uh, uh, MFAs, um, but having an MFA, a uh, multi-factor authenticator, requires an email account, which it was about half of our, our contingent workforce didn't have a company email account, but they're going to need that MFA to continue to do work remotely. Um, so having to kind of, you know, Sometimes I still find myself having to pop in and raise my hand and say, whoa, stop. There's, there's, a, there's a third of our workforce that we need to talk about and make sure that we don't break something. Um, but I mean, that's kind of, I, I think you have to build those relationships with the different groups. Um, and and so in many cases, you've got to be a little bit outspoken. You can't wait for them to come to you because they're not going to. And it does, it's not ill-intended. It's just, it gets forgotten. Uh, no, I think you hit on several points. Um, you know, WIFM, W-I-F-M, what's in it for me, right? It's such yeah. a key point. And, and speaking to some CW programs, they'll have an agenda. Here's my goal. Here's how you can help me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Exactly what you said. Here's how you can help them. Yeah. Everyone in our companies are so overworked. We just say that out loud, right? If someone knocks on your door and says, here's how I can help you or take this work off your plate, they can open the door. Absolutely, right? You need to make it about how a CW program actually takes work or makes their work better, right? Yep. We used to at LinkedIn say CW was kind of like that unseen nucleus that brought HR, procurement, IT, facility, internal audit, legal all together and said, oh, here's this problem. You need to talk to this person and this person and connect the dots. And then was able to say from the non-employee perspective, because you're right, 
right? Some of the conversations are based on the classifications because either there's uh, government regulations on them or onboarding guidelines that different teams have. So some of them are, let's say, a contractor, outsource uh, versus freelancer. But some of them are badge only versus network act only versus full provisioning, right? And it's kind of your job to say, the reason why I'm here is to make sure that you don't have to go back and do rework. Or when you launch something and all the managers bitch and complain because you forgot about these, nope, I'm here to help. Let's do some of the work up front, but this is to make this better, right? And I feel like that's sometimes the dynamic of the conversation where that's how you start to be brought in, like you said. Remember at LinkedIn, when in the early days, legal and finance were upstairs. And so every other day, my goal was to go upstairs, check in, would say like, oh, fantastic. We talked a lot about independent contractors and how we could take that off our, our legal team's play, uh, plate, but it really became the, like the visual and then how I can help. And in a remote world, it's a little bit different because you can't always kind of knock, knock or walk upstairs, but there are ways that you can develop relationships, right? Where you can say, and like, here's, here's how this team makes you guys better, safer, more compliant, cost-effective, whatever value proposition that you have, and it's sharing in that, and then they'll knock on your door almost too much, right? I, I, let me turn this topic a little bit, because then there's also on what we're doing for the managers. And so in today's climate and environment, there's some phenomenal conversations going on kind of like injustice in the world. And so I'd love to hear a little bit the perspective of the things that are going on in the DNI and space and what you've heard from your, or your managers or what, from your cross-functional partners about new philosophy processes that you guys have in contingent or let's just say people around DNI. Is anything going on? Uh, yeah, it's been a it's it's been quite a conversation. And I know in the industry and with other other program managers, it's what we're talking about right now. And and uh, you know uh, unfortunately, you know, it's it, it struck a chord with everyone with the murder of George Floyd. Um, you know, it's 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 sad and frustrating that it took that to get people to pay attention. But I, I will say I'm starting to see companies pay attention. And now we're kind of sitting from a contingent, uh, from an external workforce perspective to say, okay, well, which, now, now we can see, now we need to see action, which companies were just talking, which companies are action. Um, and from a manager perspective, I'm starting to get the question, um, which I, I've even asked the question within, my, within our industry of where do contractors fit in the DNI space? We're talking about diversity and inclusion. We're talking about being inclusive of our workforce, yet for most of us, there's a third to half of our workforce that we're not considering in that conversation. Uh, but they are here. They're here, they're in our facility. They feel like they work here. I know they don't work for us, but they work here. Um, and and it's, a, it's a question where I don't know that we have the answer yet, but it's worth a conversation because the scary thing is, how do we be more inclusive with contractors in the DNI space without affecting co-employment? Um, and that's the that's the that's the conversation that I'm having within my company. Um, I have uh, definitely some contractor space where uh, our contractors and interestingly enough, we had I had this conversation yesterday with some managers, and and as we talked about it more and more, it made me realize you know it, it's it's pretty common that your contractor space is typically of a diverse background and your, your management space is not diverse. And so how do we help foster good engagement and good inclusion and belonging with that contractor space where, I mean, 
on average, contractors are on, on your facility, you know, somewhere between eight months, year and a half, two years, um, can be. Um, and so they, they need to feel comfortable working for a client, you know, your company, um, that creates the, the same values. Um, I know I posted on LinkedIn um, a couple weeks ago, there was a great article from SAA that talked about um, uh, Monster did a survey uh, back in May, and it showed that at least 62% of, of candidates would turn down a job offer if they feel that the company doesn't uphold the same DNI values that that they personally have, and that includes contractors. Um, so, you know, I, I again, I don't know that we have a right, we don't have the answer yet, but we do have to have that conversation within our organizations. I know I'm having that conversation with my legal and my HR of how can we be more inclusive? What messages, you know, do, does our leadership provide about DNI that we should be? floating down to the contractors and, and or suppliers so they, they understand where we stand. Um, and then I think from a staffing perspective, um, there I don't know of many staffing agencies that have a DNI representation for their contractors, and they should. So, you know, if we have a, a pride network and a women's network and a black employee network and a veterans network, why don't the staffing agencies have that for their contractors that they employ as well. We are essentially a virtual environment right now. So it's really easy to provide that, or it's easier to provide that support from a virtual perspective. Whereas if we were thinking location perspective before, I understand how that's a bit hard. Yeah, no, I love that because I, I agree. I think, but I think typically or historically in the contingent workforce world, diversity has been do i what spend do i have through diversity partners it really right. is is this company owned by a woman or minority and then expanded to or veteran mm -hmm. okay if i have one or multiple what spend is through them and that shows that we're diverse and that became the check mark and it's not a check mark right so it make, that's really encouraging to hear that you guys are having conversation i think even just in 2020 and I know the year that the year that was right what's been interesting okay. is prior to 2020 or even late 2019 you know the millennials had gotten you know good feedback bad feedback but one of the things that they set out was who and where they wanted to work the very similar to what you said is need to match they want to do what's right for the world they want to work on something that has a purpose right and so it's actually interesting to hear the same here is not just the millennial group anymore it becomes mm -hmm. they're are so many divisive things, what companies do and what corporations, because I think folks are tired of corporations, bad, small, good, saying if I'm gonna yeah. work for a larger company or a company, why don't you align to my values or what I want the, well, the world to look like? And so it matters yeah. how companies approach this, not as that checkbox, but like, let's have the conversation. And it is hard and there's not a simple answer to just jump on, but starting to have a conversation is really key. And so let me ask you, because a lot, I think a lot of folks will say, who do I have that conversation with? If we're not having it, how do I invite the right people to have that conversation? So what's been your experience? What would you recommend that stakeholder look, list to look like? Right. Uh, and, and before I get into that, I just wanted to add to your point there. You know, if, if we look at it from a perspective of what candidates are looking for in a job environment, 
uh, the number one thing used to be, you know, so if we say, if we go back to, I don't know, 90s maybe, um, the, the issue was pay. Um, uh, what, what, what am I going to get paid will determine whether I get, uh, uh, take the job or not. It's not the only thing. It was just the, the biggest factor. And then by the 2000s, early 2000s, the bigger factor was work-life balance. I can, I'm willing to take a little less money if I have more time to myself. And now what we're seeing a shift to, again, pay and work-life balance matter. But now what may matter more than those two things is where are you standing in an ethical perspective and an equality world as a company? And do you match, does it match what I have? Um, many people aren't going to take a job at a company that they don't agree with the values. Um, but with the converse, when it comes to the conversation, uh, who we're having the conversation with is everybody needs to be having the conversation. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to make people a little uncomfortable here, and I think that that's okay and healthy because we need to be uncomfortable. Um, the conversation isn't people of color teaching us how to stop oppression. It's not their job to teach us how to stop oppression. It's us. Uh, the, the, the unoppressed, the, the white individuals, that we need to take the time to research and study and understand what, what the, the past 400 plus years have been about, where have we been part of that, and how do we change our behavior? Uh, as a manager, too, if you're, if you're a, especially if you're a white manager managing a diverse staff, thinking of, you know, really taking a look at how do you treat your staff and are, are, you, are you understanding the, you know, cultural and, and uh, the cultural and national background of your, of your staff and, and taking that into account. Um, I'm, I've, all, I've been loud enough to say um, inclusion does not mean assimilation. It does not mean that you recruit diverse staff and say, okay, we did it. We, we recruited diverse candidates. Now, could you assimilate to our, to our company culture um, and act like us, which in many, not all companies, but in many companies, is a typical westernized white culture. So, you know, if you're going to be an include, if you're going to think about from a manager perspective, from a business perspective, that inclusion cannot be assimilation. It has to be adapting to everybody's background. Um, and I'm a, I always say, you know, when you, when you learn, when you kind of be, wake up is, you know, the, the, I think the young people term is being woke. That's what my kids tell me anyway. You're so I feel dumb saying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you, when you wake up, uh, at least in my experience as a white person, when I started to wake up and say, oh, here's, here's the parts where I'm being part of, of oppression and racism and I need to stop, it feels overwhelming. It feels really overwhelming of where, where can I start? Um, and I've heard a couple people say it and, and it made so much sense when I heard them say it is, is start where you are. So where, where can I start? I can start with the team that I manage. I can start with the group that my external workforce group to say, what am I doing to foster inclusion for them? What am I doing to help the company and foster inclusion for contractors? And then at home, what am I doing to teach my kids uh, to, 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 be inclusive and, and understand power and privilege. So, I mean, start where you are. You don't have to start super big and run out and save the world. Um, just, just with the people that are around you. 
No, I, I love that because I think we think about the typical CW program or whatnot. Mm -hmm. The idea of how they influence, whether they do or they don't, can be exciting or also like um, just inhibiting, right? I don't have a voice. I can't tell talent acquisition to do this. I can't ask HR ops to do it. In my opinion, yes, you can, but some are, mm -hmm. some are a little afraid. And so I think that's actually helpful to say, okay, when we think about sourcing channels, we think about partners, right? Is it a check the box or how are we actually doing this? What are we looking at? How are we encouraging managers to write these job descriptions? Is a college degree needed from these schools, from this, from X, Y, and Z? What are we looking at when we interview folks? What does a culture fit mean, right? And there's things that I totally agree with you. Within your program, to start to peel back. And there's times we say, eh, I think that's actually fine. And that's okay. It's okay to say, I think this is fine. And it's okay to look and say, we can do better, right? Because you're exactly right. We talked to Stephen Keckage a couple weeks back and he was saying, it doesn't always have to go from zero to 100%. Zero to 10 and then 20. And like walking there, if you can make big strides, please definitely do. But if it's not a failure if you start right? Just kind of start. And then I would go back to kind of what you shared about what are the conversations that you're having with people, right? You had mentioned HR leadership, the general counsel, corporate communications about like, what's the message? How do we talk about this? How do we make sure that what we're doing for employees isn't different from what we're doing for the non-employees or different purposefully? Because again, it's that 360 perspective of how do you have conversation? All our talent, everyone's bringing talent in, so let's just be aware of what we're doing for employees versus our non-employees. And again, it, it differs between contractors, freelancers, outsourcers, so, but like making sure as a company, you're saying we're doing this with a purpose. We've talked about it and we've made a decision to try. And again, it's a hypothesis. Some things will work and some things won't, right? Mm -hmm. but, like, but try. So I love that idea of like, start where you are first. Don't get too overwhelmed. If you have the advocacy, if you have the influence, go a step further, but keep, but keep looking. Let's turn it a little bit back about again, because this is, a, this is a philosophy change, right? And so when mm -hmm. we think about like the title of this, of this conversation, it's about, it's about processes, technology, but I love this also a philosophy change because generally philosophy dictates process. Generally philosophy dictates technology configuration or whatnot. And so we, if we go to a conversation about, let's say system changes, Talk to me a little bit about who's involved in those conversations and, and how do you play a role when maybe you don't have a technical background, but you're kind of being asked to have a little bit more than you're used to. Yeah, the, you know, when it comes to the documentation process, um, uh, well, well, the technology process and, and how to document it, um, you know, the question comes up with, you know, who, who owns that? What are you supposed to do um, with those technologies? And, and from a contingent labor perspective or an external workforce perspective, um, yeah, the tech, yeah, the process and the documentation belongs with which division of your company owns that technology. So whether it's SAP or an HRIS system or your fight, you know, your, your sale point integration system, your, your SOX compliance, those different groups own that. But from an external workforce perspective, at least, you know, for me as the program owner, I should be part of that conversation. I should be there to be setting expectations and giving guidance of 
hearing how they're putting the process together and then making the mental check in my head of will that work for contractors? I mean, that should be, if, if you go into every one of those meetings with the idea of my job is to respond to will that work for contractors and you've done that, then we've done a good job. So yeah, they own the documentation, but you should be part of that conversation. Um, and you should know, I mean, so, you know, I remember starting, you know, in the recruiting world way back when, when I was just a coordinator and then a recruiter and all I ever knew or cared about was how to find contractors or how to find talent and then how to onboard talent. And once they were there, I didn't care anymore. Like that, that my job was done. Um, and then it became, you know, a little bit into HR, actually, actually once when I moved into procurement, um, then it was, okay, now there, there's, that was actually half of the job is finding the talent and onboarding the talent. The other half was giving technology to the talent and paying for the talent and maintaining the talent and, and, you know, redistributing the talent. Um, and that stuff was, I mean, I had to learn a lot during that time and, you know, it, it, to me, it was just really fascinating to learn those things. And I think as a program owner and as an external program, everyone in the team, I, I require my team to know at least a general overview of how all of those processes work. How do they get a laptop? How do they get a computer? How do they get a badge? Who do we call when one of those things doesn't work? How does the information feed? Because when that breaks, the manager and the contractor does not go to IT, does not go to HR. They go to us. They go to, they go to you, the program owner, because they say, well, it's a problem involving a contractor and you know about contractors, so clearly you must know this. And I will tell you, you know, we've, we've talked about that and I've literally had three emails today about a question that technically had nothing to do with what we do, but because they were about contractors is why I got contacted. I got contacted about why, about how to reactivate badges for five contractors and who forwarded that email to me was security. <laughs> like answer your own question. <laughs> it, they just, everyone assumes because it's a contractor, you know, the process. I do happen to know the process because I've taken the time to learn all of these different processes. Um, and then also what I have found um, a good process, as you talk about, you know, when you hear the different technologies, you think about, will that work for contractors? Um, actually had that the other day where um, I had, you know, we had our IT group and our technology group and our, our outsourced uh, program team group all talking about an issue. We were trying to fix an issue of provisioning returning contractors. And what each of them can do is only talk about their tool. Well, I know that I can turn on attribute one for my tool. Well, I know if you turn on attribute one, then I can do, I can provision in the FIM system and then so on and so on, but they're not putting it together. And I, you know, I said to someone today, you know, you kind of have to be, you know, not only are you a program manager, you're sometimes a project manager where you kind of have to herd those cats. And I pulled them all in and I said, okay, based on everything that you're saying, could we email you here, then you turn on the attribute, that triggers to you and that triggers to you and you email me back so then, and they were like, can, yeah, that may, like, so then I created a process because they can just tell you what each of theirs can do, but they're not thinking about the holistic thing. And so you have to kind of be there to help mush all that together into a step-by-step -step process. And let me stop you on that because I think that is such a critical 
component to the CW program. Yeah. It's one that folks assume everyone can do this process or put it together. I thought they knew or I thought, and I think one of the things why a CW program can be a foundational nucleus to this is exactly what you said. And I know some CW program owners will say, ah, that's noise, that's their job. And my answer, and I think you're saying the same is no, it's our job. Because we out. And the fact that you have people coming to you for any type of non-employee is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm a big advocate for is your CW program should own all non-employee classifications. Now you may partner on operations and policy and you'll be working with different whatever, but exactly to your point is you should know the processes and the tools and what goes on for all of those because they will come to you. They will expect you to know. And because CW program teams are generally made up of people who understand how to build a program, policy, usually there's employment law there, some system, it's usually system configuration or how to use it, right? Common sense, which is absolutely key for any type of program or whatnot. And the supplier side, we are that right program team to come up with those. What you're sharing right now is very similar to what we had at LinkedIn and eBay. Again, IT facilities badging, their operational focus is very good, but you're exactly right. It's in this box of execute, 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 execute. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks will sometimes say, well, I can't dictate what they do, what the processes are. And what I share with them is exactly what Wendy just said. You're not dictating, you're helping mm -hmm. solve. You're not, we're not blaming. This is broken because of you. It's this is broken. Right. We all need to come figure out a way together. Let me hear you propose something sound good and he said document test it does this actually work like put it together and say does this work for this country this classification others and then go but i love to hear you say that because i think so many cb program owners will sometimes say uh staff augmentation temporary workers contractors only procurement does outsource and consultants i don't know what that process is and the idea is when you think about how to continue to grow your program. And it's not that it's not hoarding. It's the idea of saying, how do you make sure that you're covering that non-employee population is the best worker experience. That's manager, supplier, and worker, right? It's the best data. It's the best blah, 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 is understanding and influencing. And again, it goes back to like, you help them. You mm -hmm. solve, there's no blame. There's no boundary, right? There's a way that you're able to do it that says we're in this together. Here's how I'm helping this right? Something that you had shared in our, in our earlier conversation was about a steering committee. Do you want to share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, yeah, so we, in, in several processes, we put together steering committees where, you know, it's, it's my stakeholders. Um, we meet, whether it be bi-weekly, if there's something going on, like a big program or a process change or monthly, um, to, to, you know, you know, sometimes in a casual conversation, sometimes I have something to present, where we need to talk about here, you know, listing the problems that we're dealing with. You know, we're having an issue with onboarding returning contractors. Uh, we don't know where the process is broken, but we know it's broken. So then we go into that, you know, we go into that failures mode assessment to determine that, well, let's, let's look at all the steps and let's talk to all of the different uh, system owners to understand where something is not communicating where one system's not communicating to another 
Um, and, you know, just kind of keeping that decision making going too. And absolutely to your point, well, you know, I, I also clearly agree that external workforce should be all non-employee workforce. That should be your program. Um, and especially in reality, most companies, your contingent labor staff augmentation program is about this big compared to your art, your BPO out processing program. And that's exactly what I have with mine. They, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about contingent labor, but it's not the majority of what we have and it's not the majority of what we spend. But all those processes affect all of them equally. If I, if, if the process of my VMS to provision email addresses fails tomorrow, it will fail for all external workers and it will hurt. <laughs> And I, and, and, you know, and I use it from a perspective when I'm talking to that steering committee, when I'm talking to those stakeholders, it's, I'm here to help, I'm here to help put this process back together so we can minimize the number of angry emails and phone calls that we'll get because nobody wants to deal with those. And that's what's going to happen. If, if something breaks down, we are going to have a problem. Absolutely. And so within that steering committee, and I think some people get nervous, ah, steering committee must mean it's executive level. I'm assuming HR, procurement, security facilities, badging, maybe internal audit, your employment attorney, right? Someone from legal. Anyone else IT. that you would say should yeah. be yeah, within that, either they're at least invited or they're getting the updates. Anyone else that you'd include in that group? Um, yeah, so we, we talked about uh, HR general counsel. Um, yeah, HR general counsel. Um, I always include um business stakeholders so so vp or director level that have that manage a lot of contract labor under their program they need because because it affects their day-to-day -day business it affects the projects that they're doing it affects the work that people are doing so i include them in those conversations to let them know what's going on what's changing what are we thinking about um, I may have mentioned we're we're in the process of doing um, an RFP for um, our technology services, uh, our, our VMS technology, and that was a conversation that I started a year in advance before we ever went RFP, and that was a conversation that I started internally with the with the stakeholders to say, and plus to get them ready to let's look and make sure we have the right tool and the best tool out there, and and it's you know. It's funny to me because it doesn't matter which VMS you have, you'll always hear managers complain about it. Um, it, it could be any of them, it, it doesn't matter. Um, they complain that, oh, I don't like it, it's cumbersome, it's whatever. And then when you tell them, well, we're gonna change it, they freak out. I don't change it, like change is so scary. Like, so you, I had, you know, you have to spend that time getting them used to the idea of what that means, how is that gonna go, what's the timeline and involve them in that project. Like the, the, the RFP project that I'm doing right now, every one of those steering committee divisions has a say in what we're, in what we're doing. They're gonna have a say in what we configure and they're gonna have a say in how we roll out and train and communicate. What I love about that is because not everyone is a great uh, coalition builder or how do I include anyone? And so when you actually lead by example, of saying I'm making a change in my program Here's how I want your input. Here's how I'm going to bring us together. Here's how I'm going to share. You generally start to see them adopt what you did on their next project. And so you kind of lead by example. You're mm -hmm. saying, no, again, like we're in this together. This 
big population, and you're exactly right, your outsourced consultants are usually dwarf the contractors, right? By magnitudes. But when you are able to start to say, here's how I, I would love us to work together to get feedback, you start to see them mirror your efforts and get invited. And then your everyone's time is managed in a better way because you know what's expected of you, who's gonna be on the meetings, what they care about and what they're expecting from you, which is phenomenal. We're, we're out of time, but I do want one more question because I think this is important because we talked about working with stakeholders. We talked about a little bit communication, but when we think about process changing, sorry, let's go philosophy changing, mm -hmm. process changing, system changing, how do you share this news with the contingent workers or their suppliers? Like what are the messages that you're actually sending to them? Um, and how do you do it and why? Because I think that's sometimes, they're usually kept out or it's only, here's an instruction guide, but it's not really, they're not taking her on the journey. So I'd love to hear you a little bit more about what's important to you about communication, that it's, it shouldn't be the final, you've done everything and now you tell someone three days before it's changed. So if you can give us a couple minute answer on how you make sure that these partners who work so hard to support you and the workers who are coming on board to be part of your talents, how do you make sure they're involved in the journey? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the interesting thing. Again, if I if I compare uh, FTE workforce to, to non-employee workforce, communicating to your employee workforce is very straightforward. You just can you can communicate to all of them at once. You can communicate to if it's just this site, if it's just this country, uh, if they're just managers, you're just communicating to managers. Uh, but with, with, the, with the external workforce, how to communicate is complex. There are different ways you need to communicate. I think sometimes the most natural way we communicate as a program is we as the program communicate to the supplier and say, here's the process change, here's something that's happening, please extend this communication down to your contractors, which can, can flow very well. Sometimes when you have hundreds, if not thousands of suppliers, it's maybe not always that easy to have that conversation. And definitely in the gig economy, I mean, every, everyone's by now heard of Reuters news where we have uh, hundreds of freelance journalists um, in the gig economy where we're engaging freelancers, there is no supplier. So, but they still need that information. They still need to know hey, the facility shut down because of COVID. Hey, we've asked you to work from home. Here's how to return to the office. Here's, you know, here, here's, here are things that, that affect your day-to-day. -day. Um, in those situations, we have to kind of partner with the, with the program to say, where do we communicate to suppliers to, to send it down? And where do we just communicate directly to contractors? Um, and I, for me, my program, I typically limit it to contractors that have a company email address because that is a that's an approved method of communication that I can do that does not violate GDPR. So that's the other thing you got to think about. So I'm not just thinking about a comm and a technology piece. I got to think about a legal piece over here. Yeah, in our VMS, we probably have contractors' personal emails. Are we allowed to use that to communicate with them? Probably not. That's not why it was put in the system. It was put in there to register, not to be communicated to, and that could violate GDPR if you're communicating to their Gmail or the Hotmail account. Um, so you have to be smart about how we communicate. And then in, and, and in reality, determining which contractors even need the communication. So again, all employees need to know that the building has ability to return to work, but do all contractors? Most of our contractors are remote and, off, and, and offshore. 
they don't care that our, that our facility is opening back up and it doesn't affect them. So we should really pinpoint what groups of contractors are being communicated to and or suppliers based on the nature of the communication. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Where are they? Are they on-site or not? Do they have email or not? Is it badge only or not, right? And then what's my message? And what's the tone, right? Did it need to know? Is it FYI? Is it emergency? Is it, is it whatnot? So I think that's really important. So I think a lot of staffing suppliers will say, I was surprised by this, or I got it handed to me. I got this. So I think that's a really good way to have people start looking at how do you do it? Because then it becomes, do you actually have the ability to? Okay, now that I have this strategy of how I want to communicate, what do I need to put in place to ensure that? Because you're right, with a VMS, can you use the personal email addresses? If the answer is no, and they don't have an at TR email, and they don't have a supplier, so how do we do? What's our, what's our other way of getting connected to, to them? Or if I have a supplier, but the account manager always changes over, how am I communicating to that relationship? So then you can put operational things in place that actually support that strategy. We are out of time. Wendy, this has been phenomenal. Gonna appreciate we could talk about this for hours on end. Really appreciate the time and expertise and stories. I think a lot of stories and examples resonate with a lot of CW program owners who say, ah, yes, me too. So appreciate you sharing some insights or whatnot. We'd hope to have you come back. Other than that, Saad, I'm gonna leave it to you to, to close this out. Yep, thank you all for attending. If you enjoy chats and conversations like this, um, we have Contingent Workforce Radio, which have previous conversations with David Sun from Salesforce and Stephen Kekic. Um, we're also planning to have future conversations with um, the Contingent for Workforce Lead at BP and among others. So you'll get emails, but if you wanna to subscribe to the podcast, it's Contingent Workforce Radio on Spotify, iTunes, whatever your favorite podcast app. And then next week, we have a research that we're presenting with Ardent Partners, um, surveying HR executives on how to manage the blended workforce, um, thinking about total talent management. I'm going to drop the link in the chat, but I'll send a follow-up email with this recording. Um, but thank you all for joining, and we hope you can continue joining and you know keep learning. This has been a phenomenal chat. I wish this could go on for another six hours, but <laughs> I know we got to go. But thank you all. Beautiful. Again. Yep. Thank you again. Thanks for having me.